0: Hello, and welcome to the Voices of Freedom Podcast. The Voices of Freedom is a division of the Americans in Wartime Experience our mission is to honor, educate, and inspire. And we do that here at the Voices of Freedom by recording and preserving the oral histories of Americans who served during combat, who served directly in combat, whether you are a veteran of the United States military or you are a civilian. Uh, we would love to hear your story. We have interviewed a very wide-ranging uh, array of people from those who served directly in combat in a forward location, to those who supported those who served in combat. Uh, we have recorded the oral histories of Rosie the Riveters, uh, USO dancers, first responders on September 11th, um, Gold Star mothers, Gold Star fathers. Uh, so if you'd like to be interviewed, or you know someone who'd like to be interviewed, Uh, Please head on over to our website at www.americansinwartime.org, and you can uh, see what we've done so far. Check out uh, some of our oral histories, and you can uh, send an email and uh, schedule a time to be interviewed yourself. Uh, If you'd like, and we'd really appreciate it if you would uh, help us out, you can donate to the project. Uh, And we like to thank all those who have donated in the past. Um, It's it's very important work that we're doing. Um, The veterans and their families deeply appreciate uh, all the support they get. So um, please consider donating to our cause. Um, Today's interview was conducted back in 2015, and it's with Army veteran Henry Rocky Calavita. Uh, Rocky uh, served in the United States Army and was deployed twice to Vietnam. Um, Rocky has a very inspiring uh, history, uh, or family history of military service, and uh, he knew at an early age that he wanted to make a career of the Army. So, after he completed college, he entered into Officer Candidate School and earned his commission in 1963 and he would be assigned to the 82nd Airborne as a first lieutenant. And while there, he volunteered and was accepted to deploy to Vietnam. Uh, Once he got there in the summer of 1965, he was embedded with a South Vietnamese airborne unit for the purposes of advising them on uh, field tactics and practices. Uh, He says that they weren't always receptive to uh, the advice they were given, Uh, But they were uh, appreciative of his presence there because it provided air and artillery support, which was um, badly needed uh, by the South Vietnamese. Uh, While there, he uh, was engaged in many armed confrontations uh, with the Viet Cong. Uh, He says they were relatively small-scaled and short-lived compared with some of the later battles he was in during his second deployment. Um, The most substantial uh, clash occurred six months into his tour where he was wounded and had to be evacuated back to the United States, Uh, and he was uh, forced to limited duty for almost a year because of that injury. He would eventually be cleared again for overseas duty, uh, and in 1968 he would transfer to the 1st Cavalry's Air Mobility Division where he would deploy a second time to Vietnam Um, and he filled the position of company logistics officer followed by the company commander. Uh, he would go in this interview into depth into the unit's, uh, ability to destroy the enemy by setting up large scale ambushes. He describes the missions they were on as, uh, hunter killer missions. So they would, uh, seek the enemy and then they would set up, uh, large scale ambushes, uh, and, um, He was so successful deploying this tactic that he would provide seminars to peers as they would arrive uh, in country later on. Um, Rocky states that he didn't experience any of the negativity that so many of our soldiers unfortunately uh, received upon returning home. Uh, I've interviewed several uh, Vietnam veterans who experienced... um, all kinds of hateful uh, attacks on them when they were when they came home, uh, or when they were out in their community, um, during, you know, dressed in uniform, they were recognized as military, uh, and they were not treated well. And that is um, that's a tragic uh, stain on our history. Uh, Rocky says he didn't see much of that, and it wasn't until 1983 um, when he started going to reunions uh, and speaking with uh, some of his fellow. Soldiers that he first heard the the stories of abuse that was received by these soldiers. Um, That was the first time, um, of course he had heard these things in the past, but this is the first time that he heard that any of the guys that he served with uh, had experienced that. Um, When Rocky uh, got out, he had been decorated with three bronze stars and a purple heart. Um, So a very distinguished career. Uh, Indeed. So, without further talking from me, uh, I'd like to bring you, in his own words, the interview with Henry Rocky Calavita.
1: This is Greg Pass with the Americans in Wartime Museum. Today's date is December the 17th, 2015, and I'm conducting an interview with Rocky Calavita, and we are in Fairfax County, Virginia, at St. Matthew's Church. Rocky, would you please give us your full name, your date of birth, and where you were born?
2: Henry Joseph Calavita, Jr. Of course, my nickname's Rocky. I've had that for over fifty years. I was born in New New Jersey, Newark, New Jersey, on February 11th, 1941.
1: And what war did you participate in? Vietnam. Any other uh, military veterans in your family?
2: Well, my dad was career military. He retired after 27 years. My uncle Mike fought in Europe uh, in World War II, and my middle son. Is currently a brigade commander in the 1st Cavalry Division. His career is still going strong, and he served in uh, Iraq and a lot of deployments to Afghanistan when he was with the Special Operations Command.
1: Now, um, so what, what, what year did you enter in the military service?
2: I got uh, commissioned out of ROTC at VPI in June 1963. I went right on active duty after I graduated and got commissioned, and I retired in uh, June uh, uh, 1983.
1: So um, we're going to talk today mostly about um, Vietnam. So um, tell us about what your your first deployment was and your your MOS and and what your duties were um, on your first deployment.
2: Well, I was commissioned uh, in 63, started my career with the 82nd Airborne as a second lieutenant. Vietnam was going on. Everybody was aware of it. A lot of us were afraid it was going to be over before we had a chance to get in it. So as soon as I made first lieutenant, they weren't taking second lieutenants at the time, it was all uh, mostly the advisory effort, I went to personnel and I volunteered to go to Vietnam. And uh, uh, I, I got there, but uh, I had to do an eight-week Vietnamese language course first, but, and I had to go to a military advisor course at Fort Bragg, so I got there in the summer of uh, '65. I was assigned to the Vietnamese uh, Airborne Brigade Advisory Detachment, uh, it was a team of three of us, a captain, myself, a first lieutenant, and a senior NCO, Sergeant First Class John Millinder, and we were with the 5th Battalion of the Airborne Brigade.
1: And what, what, what exactly were your duties?
2: Well, primarily, we, they called us advisors, but these guys had been fighting with the French and uh, for, for a long time. We were primarily of value to them. You know, we could tell them about noise and light discipline, and... And, and we could give them some advice, whether they chose to follow it or not, was something. But we were the ones that called in uh, artillery, American artillery. We were the, we were the ones that directed uh, American air support. So and we were of value to them. We did travel with them. We were in all the fights they were in. And uh, it was a pretty good outfit, actually, the so Vietnamese.
1: You're, so you're basically in that unit. I mean, you're, you're, you're fighting along with, with these men.
2: Oh, yeah. Yeah, we traveled with them. The, the advice part, you know, we'd go to the field with a battalion of Vietnamese, and uh, they're carrying uh, pots and pans and live pigs and chickens, and you know, we'd try to say, that's not cool, you know. But You know, I say they chose to listen to us, uh, or maybe so, maybe not. But we were in the fights with them. We traveled with them.
1: How long was this for?
2: Well, I was hoping it was going to be a year, but I got wounded on January 28th, 66. It was the first official day of... Operation White Wing Masher, which was supposed to be, which would have been, which was, in fact, the biggest search-and-destroy operation of the war up to that time. So I got wounded and I got medevac. so the tour lasted six months, almost to the day.
1: And what, what, what area of Vietnam were you um, at, at, during uh, this war? What's that? What, what area in Vietnam? Oh, the, the
2: Airborne Brigade, and it became a division by, by December of 65, but it was a brigade initially. They were like National Reserve so they could be all over the country. And we, in fact, got up to I Corps, II Corps, III Corps, capital military region around Saigon. Did not get into IV Corps at all. But the way it would work was a province or a district could request a Vietnamese task force, uh, airborne task force, And, and, you know, they had to get on the list, and so we'd travel to where they were, and maybe they weren't experienced in anything by the time we got there. So a lot of what we did was nature walking. Now, that's not uh, to say we didn't get into some heavy fighting, because obviously we did. But, uh, so we could go anywhere in the country that had, you know, they requested a Vietnamese Airborne Task Force.
1: Now, um, tell us about your first um, encounter with the enemy.
2: Well, the first encounter, uh, we went by helicopter to a special forces camp, I think it was up in I Corps, uh, called uh, Duco. They were under siege from the NVA and the V.C., and so this airborne task force flew in there, and by the time we got there, actually, the fighting was over. Uh, The the, uh, Montagnards, the the mountain people that these special forces trained, plus some other units that got there before us, pretty much drove off the enemy. But uh, I know as we flew in uh, to the uh, airstrip, and the rotor wash from the helicopters blew the ponchos off all the dead friendlies. That reminded me of a scene from Platoon. And so we knew a, fi- uh, a big fight had taken place, but we missed it. Uh, so that was the first time I got near uh, uh, combat. And then uh, after that, there were just num- a number of missions where we did run into good sized NVA and VC units, and we did have firefights. And of course, the way they worked, once we got artillery and air support on our side, they'd kind of drift off. They were, we, we'd always heard the enemy was invisible, and they were. We know now uh, that the tunnel complexes have been featured on Modern Marbles on the History Channel. You know, they had been building them for years. And I, understand, I understand there was a massive tunnel complex right under the 25th Infantry Division's base camp. And uh, I understand from veterans who have gone back that the, that tunnel complex is now a tourist attraction. And, and uh, you know, a lot of Americans who went back after the war got to see these things firsthand. But uh, the biggest fight was the one where I got wounded. Uh, that was I say White Wing Masher, and it was along the coast of Son, up in II Corps. And it was a hammer and anvil, 1st Cavalry Division recently in-country, Uh, was supposed to be the uh, hammer, and we, the uh, Republic of Korea and the Arvin Airborne, we were the the anvil, and they were supposed to drive the enemy to us, and the enemy would be caught in between us. And it was a very successful thing I learned after the fact, because I I got wounded on the first official day of the operation, so most of what I knew about it I read in the papers or saw on TV. But uh, the enemy took a terrific beating in in that fight, and... uh, uh, in route to where we were supposed to be as the blocking force. We passed through a number of villages, and we had to fight our way through every one of them. And uh, uh, so it it was, uh, I I don't remember the number of KIA, uh, you know, enemy KIA. I know there were plenty of them, and there were plenty of American and uh, Vietnamese and Korean KIA, too, in the fight.
0: We hope you're enjoying this episode of the Voices of Freedom podcast. The Voices of Freedom is a division of the Americans in wartime experience a 501c3 dedicated to honoring, educating, and inspiring. The mission of the Voices of Freedom is to record and preserve the wartime oral histories of Americans, both civilian and military. If you'd like to learn more or to donate to our project, please visit our website at www.americansinwartime.org. Well,
1: tell, tell, us about the, um, tell us about your personal experience during that, that um, operation.
2: Well, I'd be assigned to a company commander. I would be his counterpart for the day. I think there were five rifle companies in the battalion, and I went through, you know, with each of the company commanders on the different fights. This particular day, where I got wounded, uh, the company commander was, I think, the commander of uh, 54th Company, and he, was, uh, he spoke English not that well. The other commanders seemed to speak English better than him. He also seemed to not be that fond of us Americans. Uh, not that he was an enemy or, or anything of the sort, but uh, I don't know if he resented us being advisors or, or whatever, but he was a competent company commander, and, and I my job was to be with him that day, and we had just entered one of these villages uh, where we didn't have to fight our way through. We did every village up to that point. This one, nobody was home. We just went in there, we, you know, and got ready to leave and go to the next village, Uh, And and we got hit leaving this particular village. I got hit in the neck, the shoulder, the arm, and the leg. My company commander, uh, my counterpart, was also wounded. I think uh, the point man was killed. One of the radio operators was killed. And we had, up to this point, not been able to get artillery or air support because the 1st Cavalry Division was coming in using that same airspace that the rounds would have traveled through. And so we didn't have the benefit of of that, but uh, shortly after I got wounded, uh, all the first cab helicopters had made it to the LZs, and we were able to get artillery support and some close air support, and we also got medevac that got me and my Vietnamese counterpart and the other wounded people out of there.
1: What were you wounded with small arms or? Um, it was or mortar you know? fragments,
2: mortar fragments, and uh, I was real lucky. I got one in on the neck; it didn't go in that far. Got one that just sliced me on the shoulder. Got one that hit me in the arm, and one that a big one that hit me in the leg. But. Uh, it all the shrapnel was removed and I recovered obviously I stayed in the Army and I went back for a second career but it was quite an experience uh, the tempo of fighting in Vietnam at that time had really picked up because a lot of US units had been coming in the first cavalry the 101st with uh, the Americal division 20 I, the 65 was the year that a lot of the US units came in so those uh, uh, Evacuation hospitals like the one I went to in Quinyon, they were filling up. And they couldn't really handle all the wounded that were coming in, so they did a patch-up job on us. And as soon as possible, everybody who was fit to fly was flown to Clark Air Force Base in the Philippines. They did the triage, decided who could uh, go home, you know, who would go home, the war was over, uh, who could be patched up and sent back to the fight, who needed more surgery or something, which would be done in Tokyo. and so. Actually, my departure from the country after I got wounded was pretty darn quick.
1: Now, um, before you were wounded, what were your living conditions like? Where, where were you? Um
2: well, we when we were in the field, we were with them. You know, uh, uh, the team NCO and I used to, you know, you know, uh, stay together. You know, on the ground outside, you had poncho liners and this, that, and the other. But we were like camping. Uh, the company, I mean, the senior battalion advisor used to say with the battalion commanders elsewhere. But we were with them. Now, when we were out of the field, we had a little, uh, we had a couple rooms in the uh, Vietnamese armor school, which was a compound uh, just uh, out of uh, Saigon, and we had a couple rooms where we actually had some civilized conditions when we were out of the field, but we were mostly in the field.
1: Now, um, how many tours did you do? Did two. So, you get wounded, patched up, where do you go from there? Well, six sixty five, 65, right?
2: It was 66 now, January, January 66, after I got patched up at the uh, 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 evacuation hospital, and then we went to the Philippines, I had enough wounds and enough bloody bandages and so forth, and I actually was told, the war is over, you're going home. So I was ultimately medevaced to DeWitt Army Hospital at Fort Belvoir, because my family lived in Arlington. And... uh, uh the surgeon told me everything had been removed everywhere else, but they still had to dig some out of my leg, so that was done. And then after that was done, uh, you know, I was concerned. I wanted to stay in the Army. I didn't want to be that to be the end of it. And I asked the doctor, and he says, no, you should make a full recovery, but you're going to be, when you leave medical holding, you're going to be on light-duty status for six months to a year. And, uh, you know, that was certainly better than hearing them say, no, you're not going to be able to stay in this, that, and the other. So I called Infantry Branch after I got out of the hospital, and they knew I needed a light-duty assignment. I wanted to try to stay near my family in northern Virginia, and I ran that by the assignment officer. And he said, well, we, we have an opening for an admin officer at the Army War College in Carlisle, Pennsylvania, just about an hour away. And I said, I'll take that. And, of course, he lied a little bit because it was two hours away, but still, it was a light-duty job. And uh, it wasn't a career-enhancing job, but I figured I I had three Bronze Stars by that time, a Purple Heart combat infantry badge. I figured, I'll still be competitive. Let me just get through this. But then what happened was promotions accelerated Army-wide because of veterans getting out because of Vietnam, and then casualties because of Vietnam. Promotions started moving right along. So in the summer of 66, I made captain. About the same time I made captain, the commandant of the War College, a really fine two-star general named Eugene Soleil, World War II veteran. He was looking for a couple of new aides, and uh, I interviewed for the job, and I got it. So for 15 months of the 18 months I was in Carlisle, as was the commandant's aide at the War College. That, was, that caused me to meet a lot of general officers and very important people but then the general General Saleh got orders before me to leave he had to go to some, we- uh, some weapons systems evaluation group or something he was leaving the war college and he asked me in the junior grade where we wanted to go and I said uh, I'd like to go to the airborne committee at Fort Benning and he said that's a really stupid idea he said I'll send you to Fort Benning but you're going to the advanced course so I went to the infantry advanced course at Fort Benning this would be uh, uh You know, I guess the late summer of 67, and I was in a class with, I forget how many of us there were. It started with a whole bunch of captains and a few majors, but promotions are moving right along, and by graduation, uh, nine months later, it was mostly majors and a few captains. I was one of the captains because I was a junior captain to start with, but every one of us went back to Vietnam. Every one of us had been there, and we all knew we were going back, and, and uh, uh, you know, we all knew when we accepted it, and that was fine, because we were all career guys, and that's where we were supposed to be. The problem, that wasn't a problem, but toward the end of the advanced course, everybody starts deciding what unit they want to ask for. You had the option to ask for what unit you wanted to go to. You didn't necessarily get it, but you could ask. And I'd been airborne almost my whole career, 82nd Airborne and the Vietnamese Airborne. So I kind of wanted to go to the 101st, but I had a lot of classmates. Everybody was talking up the hundred and first, so I, I I decided. Well, let me ask for this first cavalry division. They were the the air mobile division. They they were tested at Fort Benning for years before they were redesignated the first cavalry division. Of course, they went over in '65 and got in that famous fight in the Edrang Valley. Uh, one of the brigades of the first Cav was airborne. I thought maybe I still got a chance to get an airborne slot, so I asked for the first cab, and uh, I did get it. And I was in the first brigade, which was the one that was airborne. But by the time I got there, they unairborne the first brigade because everybody, you know, I, I think the jungle is no place for paratroopers. The best way to get troops to where they needed to be was by helicopter, and that's what that division was all about. And I was still very happy to be in light infantry, and I didn't, I wasn't interested in tanks and their. Maintenance problems and their spare parts problems. So it was a good it was a good uh, assignment, and the first cab was indeed a, a major player in the Vietnam War.
1: And this this was sixty seven.
2: No, that I graduated in uh, the summer of sixty eight. So it's a summer of, uh, it's a summer of sixty eight. Got there on my second tour.
1: Okay, so tell us about um, you're you're a captain now. Um, so, were you a, a company commander, and what were your duties? And
2: well, I wanted to be a company commander. Every infantry captain should want to be a company commander. And uh, the way they ran it, company commanders, and uh, I, I don't know how far up the, the rank chain, but people stayed in the job for six months. Uh, that was the, the goal, six months. Uh, because after that, you had to get out so somebody else could get in and do it for six months. Now, six months wasn't a rule. I mean, it was a, what the Army wanted at the time. But, of course, if you were wounded, killed, or, or you would incompetent, you wouldn't, if you a company commander, you wouldn't be doing any six months. You'd be out of there. Uh, I actually did it for seven months because, to my surprise, coming up on six months, uh, I was told there's no captains in the pipelines. So I stayed. So I did it for seven, seven and a half months, actually. And it was a great job. But I didn't get it right away. When I got to Vietnam, I went to the first team academy, That was where, you know, we learned about the air mobile concept and so forth. I was assigned to the 2nd Battalion of the 8th Cavalry at an LZ named Sharon up near Quangtree in I-Corps. And I went there all prepared to make a case to get a company, but I was told, hey, the company's all got, you know, recently assigned new commanders, so you're going to be the S-4, which is the logistics guy. So the first thing I did was right back to Fort Benning to get the logistics officer's correspondence course from the infantry school because I didn't know much about supply, but I got that and uh, uh, I did that job for three months, and then all of a sudden we were told the, the cavalry first calves moving to three corps. We're moving all the way down south to around the, the capital military district around Saigon, and I, as a S4, I outloaded the entire battalion. How many uh, 130 sorties and this, that, and the other. And I was about the last one out of uh, Quang Tri on a 130. And we landed in the Michelin rubber plantation in uh, three Corps. And as soon as I reported the battalion commander, he said, you're going to the field. I thought, oh my god, what did I do wrong? And then I found out it wasn't anything wrong at all. The company commander with Delta Company, Nick uh, radio call sign, so angry skipper, he had been on the majors list. And his number came up so majors don't command companies. He was coming out, and I was going in. So uh, October uh, 1968, I became the COO of uh, Delta Company 2nd Battalion, 8th Cavalry, and I held that job for seven months. And we were in War Zone C and War Zone D, and these were all free fire zones. There were no friendlies. The government of South Vietnam assured that us that all the friendlies had been relocated so there's nobody in our area of operation but good guys and bad guys and the bad part of that was laying an ambush you could bite the nose off an enemy several times your size and then you'd be fighting for your life the rest of the night but the good news was there wouldn't be a me there wouldn't be any kind of a friendly uh you know massacre situation so we operated there for for seven months off several different lz's first one was uh, an LZ named Joe and then we went from there to an LZ called Rita. Now, most of these LZs were named after the first battalion commander's wife. I mean, the the, the first battalion commander who built it and then occupied it, uh, he could name it whatever he wanted. Most of them named it after the wife. That's why you got an LZ Becky and an LZ Carolyn and an LZ Rita. But, uh, although that's what most of them did, it wasn't required and that's why you got an LZ Joe or an LZ Jamie, whatever. They can name it whatever they want. LZ Rita had been occupied by the big red one, the first division, and they were leaving. I don't know where they were going, but we took over that lz and that was that was uh, uh that was a rough one. That one was the victim of uh, a lot of uh, NVA activity incoming rockets and mortars at night and this that and the other and uh, so we had to when we took it over, we had to aggressively patrol around that lZ to knock off you know, the probes and the rockets and the mortars, and we did that pretty good. And uh, so we had four line companies in the battalion, Alpha Bravo, Charlie and Delta, and uh, one would stay on the LZ as perimeter defense and the other three roamed, you know, the AAO, looking for people to kill. And uh, we were very successful there, and after several months on Rita, our battalion, was going to be headquartered at an LZ called St. Barbara. That was actually in the 25th Division's area of operations. And uh, it was right near the the border between 25th Division and the 1st Cab. So we were going to be doing search and destroy in RAO, but we weren't going to be doing perimeter defense around LZ St. Barbara because the 25th Division was doing that. So for a period of time, the 2nd of the 8th had all four rifle companies out and about ambushing. And that was the main tactic ambush. And quite frankly, my company was very good at it. Uh, I told them, I said, I know Fort Benning Doctrine is small ambushes out. You know, when you kill somebody, then you try to make your way back to friendly lines. You could get killed doing that. I proposed we could do full company-sized ambushes with one platoon on the kill zone and two platoons locked behind so we're in a 360-degree defensive position. If we bite the nose off somebody who's bigger than us... uh, and they attack us, we're prepared. We got the wagon circled. And I told my guys, this will only work with absolute noise and light discipline. No smoking, no talking, no farting. I mean, everything's got to be quiet. If it doesn't work that way, we'll go back to small ambushes out. But it did work that way, and we got, uh, uh, we were very successful in ambushing.
1: Let's stop there. Let's talk about how that works for people that aren't in the military. Uh, most people have never been in the light infantry unit. So you have this element, whether it's a small squad or a company size, go out, and then you just lay and wait?
2: What you do, that's exactly right. We always tried to find a trail to stop for the night on, you know, and, and preferably a trail that showed usage. Ho Chi Minh, sandal prints, canvas, NBA shoe prints, bicycles, and this, that, and the other. And they weren't, they weren't that hard to find. We would try to... Uh, Stop for the night on a trail that was good that looked good for for an ambush if it was getting late We hadn't crossed anything yet. We could call back to battalion to see if the commander's helicopter or somebody could get up overhead and Identify a trail they could steer us to because I we really wanted to be on a trail every night to kill people and 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 we were very good at actually getting that done but the what you do the, the biggest killer killing device in the ambush was the claymore mine okay that sucker is a uh, it's it's a plastic body, it's full of C4, it's got about 700 ball bearings in it and we would lay them along the trail because you want to get on your trail soon enough to, to get ready before they start moving and that, that and uh, grenades and uh, then rifle fire but uh, uh, a, lot of, a lot of companies that I heard of used to put trip flares on the kill zone and I wouldn't let my guys do that because what you've just done then is you reduce the size of your kill zone by fifty percent you know they're gonna come in the first you guys are gonna hit the trip flare you're gonna be obliged to start your ambush and you didn't have a full kill zone I wouldn't let my guys do that and uh, uh, we didn't dig too deep we didn't want to make a lot of noise and we'd get off the trail just far enough so that we wouldn't be hurt by the back blast from the claymores uh, and you know and, but it would take out whoever the heck they were aimed at and we did that was most we did that most every night that I had the company almost every night we, we needed to find some place to uh, ambush in uh, support of secrecy in my company I didn't take resupply every day or even every other day I wanted to be able to move in my AO as far as I could before we stopped for the night. I didn't want the NBA to be able to track me by when the supply choppers came in and when they left and so forth and so on. And we were quite successful in ambushing. And when I turned the company over seven months later, I was going to stay with the battalion as the S-2. But then I got uh, orders sending me up to Division G-3, the headquarters. And when I got there, and this is the truth, I was told my assignment was going to be to develop an ambush seminar that I could take to the different fire bases in the first half, not to teach ambush 101, but to just exchange ideas. For example, in my company, we came up with a little device. It was just a, you know, made of plywood, but it was like a keyboard where you, we could place these claymore clappers. And so when somebody came down the trail, you, you just hit those things and you blow half the forest down, you know, while you're taking these guys out as well. So, I mean, ideas like that and the full-sized ambush, I I, I pitched that to a couple of battalions. It's not wasn't Fort Benning doctrine, so I was very careful about talking about the full company-sized ambush, but uh, once I started that seminar, I found out other companies were doing it, too, so I, I hadn't really invented it, but a lot of them were doing it stupidly. One company I talked to, they used to do a 360-degree perimeter, so... So they could defend themselves, but they actually were astride the trail they're ambushing on. So the only place they're going to kill anybody is at one end of that circle or the other. And I wasn't going to embarrass anybody, and I really hated to write an after-action report that, you know, actually said, you know, the company commander for Delta Company, Fifth of the Seventh, is stupid. I figured I'll I'll just tell it like it is in my after-action reports and let them figure out. Uh, what to do. Uh, I I really, I found a lot of the companies in the division were using uh, trip flares in the center of the kill zone. I never was okay with that. That that I thought was stupid. But I I just write up what I heard from these guys and let uh, G3 and the other people figure it out. But I figured I got picked for that job because my company had been exceptionally good at ambushing.
1: Now, um, when you go out on a given night, obviously there's a lot of nights you're out there that probably don't have any enemy contact. Roughly, what percentage of the times you go out that you actually do um, find the enemy?
2: I'd say more times than not we would find somebody to kill, even if it was only one or two. Because what you had, these fire bases were between Cambodia and Saigon. The, the NVA didn't have a logistical tail behind them like the American forces. What they did, they had logisticians coming down the trail, pre-positioning stuff, arms, ammunition, rice, and this, that, and the other. And the idea was when the main force units got into a position to attack something, everything they needed would be right there. So a lot of the things we were killing at night were logisticians, bringing supplies, and if we weren't killing them, just our search and destroy, we would bump into these caches uh, where they had rice and weapons and medical supplies and so forth, and we would deny them that because we found it. Uh, So there was enough activity, even if it was only a couple logisticians or or smaller groups, pre-positioning supplies, or whether it was a, a main force unit coming through. There were plenty of enemy in that I.O. to keep us busy most of the nights. Most nights we had something. Maybe the body count in the trail the next day would only be two or three or sometimes even one or sometimes it would be 15 or 20. There was always somebody out there.
1: Do they typically move at night?
2: They move at night. One of the dumbest things that happened uh, in my tenure, we had set up on a nice trail. I called it in. We're going to stop for the night. There's a lot of footprints, bike prints and this, that and the other we think we're going to kill somebody here tonight and we're going to set up and we did and then I get a call on the radio saying this is the truth the G3 thinks the the night belongs to Charlie we want you to pick up and move I thought that you gotta be kidding me I said we're we're in a good position right now to kill a bunch of people tonight and you want me to get up and move and then we'll be vulnerable I said we've been killing people all along because we're not moving at night and they are and so uh, you know, I uh, I cut that one off by saying you're com uh, you're coming in weak and garbled, and I'm I'm not understanding. And then I said, and well, you know, I've got movement on the trail out, which is not a good thing to do. Your superior officer on the radio out, but we did have a, a good night on that trail. A bunch of them, stumped, you know, walked right through our ambush. We hadn't moved. We stayed where we were. We were set up. And we killed a bunch of people that night, and that's a good thing because I never heard again about moving at night. That was dumb. We were killing them at night. All our all our kills by ambush were them moving at night.
1: So, um, so you do this for how many months?
2: I had seven months.
1: And then, and then, uh, was that the end of your tour? Or no,
2: I still had I still had sixty days left. That's when I got the, the captain ambush job. That's where I finished my company command time. I uh, took an R&R to Hong Kong or something. When I came back, I found that I had been ordered up to G3. I did that ambush seminar thing my last two months in country.
1: Now, um, you and I met a number of years ago and did something similar to this before in um, an interview. And I, I remember you telling a, a pretty powerful story about a, a young man that was hit a, at night. Um, I know you had a lot of... A lot of um, stories like that. Do you recall which one I'm talking about? I think I do. Do you um, mind talking about that, or...? or
2: If if it's the one I'm thinking of, I think it was January 28th, and uh, we're we're doing uh, search and destroy. And ambushes are one thing, but when you're doing that, you're just liable to run into somebody who's waiting for you, a bunker complex. You, You know, your maps don't show you where they have their bunker complexes and so forth. And we walked into something and, uh, you know, immediately we're returning fire, and then we're trying to do, always try to do a perimeter, you know, try to, I, we used to move, my company anyway, platoons abreast, one in the center, CP in the center, and then one on each flank. And that made it easier to, to kind of circle the wagons if you got hit. Uh, I know some companies that move single file through the jungle, which to me, that you're just asking to get your butt handed to you so we ran into one of these things and we were able to make our perimeter first thing i always called for was army air support not air force army because they with their mini guns and uh, so forth they could get fire in real close to you they were very accurate uh, artillery wouldn't do you any good as close as we were to the enemy and neither would air force air support so i used to call for helicopter support and uh... uh in this one particular fight uh... even though we had you know death from above raining down on the enemy they must have been in bunkers they must have had some sort of cover because we stayed in contact all night i had taken wounded people and all night you know i heard them in pain and uh... i you know there's nothing much we could do for them uh... the medics were doing all they could but uh... Uh, that was a terrible night because all night long, and, you know, come daylight, that's when that enemy starts to disappear. They start to do their invisible act. But we put up with it all night long. We had, uh, 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 what do you call them, strobe lights to mark our perimeter. And overhead we had spooky, uh, the, the um, modified C-130 with the Gatling guns that could, you know, could put rounds right in front of you, you yeah. Uh, and uh, so we had all kinds of air support. We had flares being dropped and this, that, and the other. And we had a, a sky full of friendly people, but we were still on the ground with a bunch of unfriendly people that I think probably were a much bigger unit than what we were. And so, uh, you know, we had to uh, fight probes off all night long, come daylight they disappear, but all night long, couldn't get the wounded out till the next day. And there was a lot of moaning and groaning and crying, and it just really upset me because we couldn't do anything about it.
1: What, of all your experiences during the war, um, can you describe what was probably the most frightening for you?
2: Well, I I think a situation like I just described, where it's dark, there's a bunch of people out there that want to kill you. Uh, We've got everything possible we could call for overhead, and they're still coming after us. And uh, you never knew how it was going to end. I mean, all it took was for them to break through a piece of the perimeter and get inside, then... You know, that stuff up there that's supposed to be killing them, we couldn't use it anymore, it would be killing us. That was the scariest thing, because some of these some of these situations would go on all night long, you never knew how it was going to come out. You really had to depend on your soldiers, you know, to do what they were. We had some advantages, like we had some starlight scope, some night vision capability that we don't think they had. And we never did... Uh, we never did get our perimeter breached, but that, you know, when I'm sitting in my hole talking to the battalion commander or talking to the air support or what have you, I'm just hoping that those guys out there in the perimeter are doing what they're supposed to be doing. And I know out there in the perimeter, they're, they're hoping I'm doing what I'm supposed to be doing by talking to the air and the artillery, anybody who's going to help keeping them alive. and. Uh, um,
1: how, how, land navigation in, in a jungle like that—I I imagine that would be incredibly difficult. When it really, you're call, w- when you're calling for air support and all
2: that—it wasn't—it wasn't, it wasn't uh, it really that bad. Now, if we stopped for the night you know, to do an ambush or something like that, the first thing we did was calling what we call defensive targets. We would pre-plot some artillery all around our perimeter, okay? And, the, and those defensive targets were registered. And then if we got attacked, you know, from any one of those, like uh, defensive target A. You know, shift one hundred uh, left and uh, drop, add whatever. We could adjust artillery from those things we'd already called in. We wouldn't be, you know, it wouldn't be uh, called in blind. Um,
1: well, um, t- describe the weather conditions there in Vietnam.
2: I think I think in two tours in Vietnam, there was one or two nights that I was kind of chilly overnight. Mostly it was hot, uh, and it was hot. huh. A lot of rain. We had your monsoon season, yeah we had we had that um, what I know about uh, what I've read about the delta, where I never got uh, that that uh, wet all the time and 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 leeches and stuff, you know we had that in little bit little doses where I was, but uh, I was so thankful I was never down in the delta, but whatever the conditions, it was hot, and we had the monsoon seasons, and uh, you just deal with it just deal with it
1: a lot of bugs creatures
2: leeches and uh, not snakes now they're, they're out there uh, I don't think I had anybody bit by a snake and I know I sure wasn't but I've seen them uh, I, I, when I was with the Vietnamese we're going through the jungle and, and the uh, guys are you know working their way around the vines and the twigs and crap and I'm behind a, some Vietnamese paratroopers and I look up in this tree that they're ducking and going under and there's this lime green snake all coiled up there and I don't know what kind of snake he was but he didn't look very friendly but when it came my turn I just ducked and went under him like everybody else did and he didn't do anything. Uh, we heard there were tigers, we heard there were uh, some other uh, animals but I think they were more scared of us than we were of them. Animals and reptiles never were much of an issue.
1: When you're on these um, when you're on these ambush locations, uh, are you just laid up on the ground, I assume? I mean, you got to what a poncho liner, that's about it? I mean, uh, a poncho, I mean, or, or uh, no. right on the ground?
2: Just on the ground. We would dig some shallow positions, you know, to give us some defense. Uh, or if we were in a situation where we knew we were gonna get hit, we dug some really deep holes. We had one operation where we went into an area where uh, It was two, two, my company and one other were involved. And we just kind of walked into it. And they were, the enemy was trying very hard to defend what they had there. And so we called in all the air support and this, that, and the other. And uh, we finally kind of beat them down. Daylight came. They kind of moved away. And we started looking at what we had. And there were a lot of bunkers and stuff. So we made a two-company perimeter. We called for barbed wire and sandbags and all that stuff. And, in the meantime, the intelligence types and some of the commanders from the Cav were coming in to see what we had because we thought this was a significant NVA headquarters, a lot of documents to be found, a lot of material, and 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 it, 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 a lot of it was found. And we were told toward the end of that first day, prepare to spend another night because uh, we got a lot of stuff out, but we didn't get it all. And so we're going to division in the headquarters types are going to fly on out. They'll be back the next day. Well, we knew we were going to get hit that night, so we dug really deep holes. And uh, we did get hit right after dark. uh, You could hear the mortars leaving the tubes, coming our way. And then we got uh, attacked by a large force. This is two companies now. And that pretty much lasted all night. They would start to disappear with first light. We, on the other hand, with the big deep holes we were in, we had illumination in the way of... uh, uh, flares dropped from aircraft. We were lighting up the night, and I know they didn't like that. Uh, but uh, that kept us, that helped keep us alive.
1: Um, were you married at the son?
2: No. I didn't meet my wife till after my second tour.
1: Well, um, describe your homecoming.
2: My homecoming wasn't, well, the first homecoming was by medevac so that I didn't run into anybody. Uh, who blamed me for the war like a lot of my kids did on the on, on that second tour. But I still didn't get it as bad as them because uh, uh, I was a lifer. I pretty much stayed in the military uh, community. I did fly out of Vietnam uh, after my second tour. I think I, I, I uh, landed in California. I got a connection to Chicago. I got a connection to Dallas. And I was in uniform because I didn't know... Uh, I didn't know how badly people some people were blaming the military for this war i didn't it it never crossed my mind and then when i finally got home you know i had 30 days leave then i went back to the military my assignment was at fort Belvoir, uh and i didn't hear till i started doing reunions with my soldiers and and by the way we've been doing them for years Uh, and i love i love going to them and uh, they were mostly not draftees. They were mostly kids who signed up to do their duty, but they tried to go home and blend back into the civilian life, and uh, uh, and uh, found out they were being blamed for the war. So you know, being spit on, baby killer, and all that other stuff. So a lot of them had it. Uh, I can't believe I, I can't believe some of them said they couldn't wait to get out of their uniform and hide it somewhere. Uh, but I didn't run into any of that. Uh, I think I was very lucky because I didn't know how bad it was until I started going to reunions with my guys. You know, they were telling me what they had to put up with. That's pretty bad. Anyway, what we do now, and like I say, we, we've we been having reunions for years. My company in particular, they started trying to find people and and, uh, and, and try to organize reunions and get togethers and I was already in my second career with the sheriff's office in Fairfax when they found me. I think I was a lieutenant by that time. We're talking mid-90s. They they found me, and they called. And, and uh, I never really wanted to go to any reunions because I felt I did a good job as a company commander. I didn't want somebody to come up to me and tell me otherwise. But they finally convinced me. I went to my first reunion. In, uh, this is reunion of Delta Company, 2nd of the 8th. I went to my first reunion in Charleston in 96, I think, and it was such a good experience. And so after that, you know, m- me and my wife, or me, we had several reunions, and, and unfortunately in later years, uh, an excuse to get together is because somebody died and we're at the funeral, you know. But that was a really good thing. I. Uh, always told other veterans you know you know if you have a chance to go to a reunion with the people you were in the war with you should take it it's really good good experience healthy we just had another big uh, reunion in october uh in tennessee and that's an annual one and uh, they they're just good anyway what we do now, and I don't know when it started or who started it, but when a Vietnam veteran sees another Vietnam veteran, you can usually tell by the ball cap or something, you go up to that person and say, welcome home, brother. And then they reply, welcome home, brother. And we do that because nobody said welcome home when we came home, but it's all good now.
1: You mentioned the, um, the, the, the welcome home, brother, um, the gentleman we just interviewed before you came in here was Desert Storm. And, um, The reunion that that the veterans from Desert Storm had was night and day from what the Vietnam veterans had. And I've been told by some Vietnam veterans that there's a reason for that because the Vietnam veterans really wanted to make sure that it was a good homecoming. When you saw the troops coming back from the Gulf War, what were your thoughts?
2: um, I'm glad they were getting heroes welcome. Now Norman Schwarzkopf was a major with the Vietnam Advisory Detachment when I was a lieutenant over there. I I got to know him uh, then. And uh, of course, he passed away. He's buried at West Point now. But um, uh, every one of us wanted to see the, the soldiers come home and be treated like heroes. And and I think we had the, the Vietnam veterans had a lot to do with people saying thank you for your service. Now, it, it almost sounds eh. did they really mean it or is just something to say? I think most of them really mean it. But I think the way we got treated. Uh, and then we fixed ourselves up by saying, welcome home, brother. I think that had a lot to do with the uh, thanks for your service that's going on now.
1: Um, this video here, you'll, be, you'll get a copy in a few months, and it'll be kept up to the Library of Congress as well, so your, your family um, a couple hundred years from now might stumble upon it. What would you want them to know about your military service?
2: That's the best thing I ever did in my life. I always wanted to do it. Um uh, since I was a little kid, I wanted to be an Army guide. And so I did what I wanted to do, and I'm happy with the way I did it, and I'm happy that the soldiers that I was fortunate enough to command liked the way that I did it. And I wouldn't have it any other way. I'm glad I did it.
1: Anything else you want to add?
2: No, no, no. I think, I think, Greg, I'm done.
1: Well, I was planning on saying thank you for your service before you said that. Yeah. So <laughs> Thank you so much for your service. My pleasure. It's great for you to come in again. And on behalf of the Americans Time Museum, um, thanks for sharing your story with us. I greatly appreciate
0: it. My pleasure. I hope you enjoyed this interview. If you'd like to find out more about the Voices of Freedom Project and the Americans in Wartime experience, or if you'd like to donate, please visit our website at www.americansinwartime.org. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast.